you know, if you want to achieve something, you have to be strategic about achieving it. Hello, print friends, and welcome. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. Each week, I chat with artists who use print-based media to do something beyond the expected. This is a bilingual podcast, so if you subscribe to us, you'll be getting episodes in English with me, as well as Spanish with Renato Gilzambrano. Together, we speak with printmakers around the globe about their practice and passions in the world of printmaking. Hello, Print Friend is brought to you by Speedball Art Products who've been offering a diverse range of high-quality products to your creative practice since 1997. But we all know those products do not use themselves. That is why Speedball works with a fantastic lineup of contemporary printmakers who make up the Speedball team of demo artists. Artists like Alden Knight, founder of Odd Petals DIY Creative Resources, which he founded because of his experience as a touring musician. What began as a way to design, print, and distribute merch for his own band quickly grew into a full-time project. He loves teaching musicians and artists how to take more command of their merchandise and showing them that anyone can make and enjoy art. So if you want to learn a few tricks of the trade and expand and improve your practice, head on over to Speedball's YouTube channel to see how it's done. There's a link in the show notes. This episode of Hello Print Friend is also brought to you by McLean's Printmaking Supplies, who've been dedicated to the art and artists of relief printmaking since 1979. Their small specialist team in the Pacific Northwest is the leading supplier of Japanese relief tools for printmakers in the U.S. and abroad, whose primary purpose is to help you find the materials and support you need to reach your printmaking goals. In addition to their high-quality Japanese carving tools, McLean's has resources, books, DVDs, and information on how to use everything you need to make a woodblock, from barons and blocks to paper and whetstones. So head on over to McLean's at imcleans.com or follow the link in the show notes and learn something new today. My guest this week is Joseph Lupo. Joseph Lupo is a professor of art at West Virginia University. This was a very fun conversation. Joseph is a born teacher, and as you'll hear, I come to some life lessons myself in our chat. We talk about his practice repurposing copyright-free French comics from the early 1900s, choosing not to make art that everyone's going to like, additioning work as it relates to commercial art spaces, and the wonderful printmaking program at West Virginia University. Without further ado, sit back, relax, and prepare to accept Ceci n'est pas un pipe, with Joseph Lupo. Hi, Joseph. How's it going? Hey, Miranda. How are you? I'm really good. I'm really excited to talk to you. Yeah. Um, yeah as I was saying, I feel like I've, uh, you know, in my gotta catch them all uh, contemporary printmaker chart, <laughs> like I've gotten, you know, like all the printmakers around you, but <laughs> like now's my chance to actually uh, get Joseph Lupo. So uh, because I've talked to your students and people you've collaborated with. Um, and so now we get to chat. So I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, so am I. I'm super excited about this. Excellent. So would you please let all of our dear listeners know <laughs> who you are, where you are, and what you do. Yes. So uh, I'm Joseph Lupo. Um, I am a professor of art and I'm the coordinator of graduate studies at West Virginia University in Morgantown. But um, I'm also a husband uh, to my wife, Anne, uh, who's an amazing principal at a local elementary school here in town. I'm a father of two daughters and we all live with one perfect little dog named Lulu. Oh! Okay, I'm going to have to resist just derailing the whole interview now. <laughs> Lulu's got her own Instagram, so you could look her up. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. Before Just plug it plug it quick, then we'll talk printmaking. Yeah. I think it's called uh, The Real Lulu Miller. I think it's what it's called. <laughs> uh, imitators need not apply. Yeah. <laughs> that's great. That's great. So that's where you are now. But where did you grow up and what role did art play in that part of your life? 
Yeah, so um, I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago. Um, so my family, my parents moved us out of the city when I was really young. Um, and I grew up in a suburb called Schomburg, which is essentially like a big mall. <laughs> um, and uh, and so art, you know, so my family is a very sort of like, uh, you know, normal sort of blue collar family. My dad worked for the electric company Commonwealth Edison in the city. You know, even when he moved out into mm. the suburbs, he was commuting into the city. Um, and he was like a meter reader for a long time. And then he worked up to various other kinds of, of office jobs and my mom was just like a, a um, an office assistant at uh, various jobs. The last one was at the hospice, the local hospice. Oh, in our, wow. Um, you know, so like being being an artist wasn't something that uh, was like in my family, you know. And so I drew all the time. That was the thing is like, I think we all kind of knew I was going to do something with art because I was just constantly drawing when we would drive somewhere you know, we had a station wagon, I would be in the way, way back, and I would be just lying down, and I would just be drawing, like, even if it was dark outside, I would just be drawing on paper, you know, I, mm. I just, I never stopped drawing. And so, and so, like, we didn't go, even though we were, you know, whatever, 20 minutes away from the Art Institute of Chicago, like, I think I only went there, like, once as a kid, you know, like, in a, with a, school trip, you know, so I, I just didn't really understand what it was to be an artist. I, I thought, like, I was going to work for Disney, you know, or right. or something like that, you know, and, and then it wasn't until I went to college. Um, it, then I started to, you know, go to galleries and go to museums and starting to understand like this aspect of being an artist, you know, the, the sort of the fine art aspect of being an artist. Yeah, yeah. And then like, the philosopher in me also wants to be like, Whatever that means, you know, <laughs> like, <'cause it> <laughs> <Exactly. laughs> but I do know what you mean. I do know what you mean that 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 kind of more formalized, formalized structure that we what we call sort of capital F, capital A fine art, you yeah. know, that that there are galleries and there are museums and some are commercial and some you pay to get into and some are free and some art looks like shit and some art doesn't look like shit, you know, <laughs> like the whole <laughs> rainbow, right? Exactly. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, outside of um, the kind of visual culture that you're introduced to, you know, growing up in the suburbs, which is can be very different. Yeah, mm. yeah. And then so what about printmaking? When did um, that enter your life? Yeah. So like, you know, everybody else that's a printmaker, I didn't know anything about <laughs> going to college. And I, I just stumbled, I, you know, looking back at your life, I think you, you, I think you can realize that there's a lot of ways in which things you got really lucky, you know? Mm. Um, so, uh, so I didn't know anything about printmaking. I didn't really apply to art schools because my parents, you know, were, supportive but they were like well you know you should get a good education you know like just in case um so i ended up going to bradley university um in peoria illinois uh which is a really small school but they have a printmaker there named oscar gillespie who is like this master engraver and intaglio artist mm -hmm. right and so i had no idea um so I go to Bradley. He teaches, you know, the the thing that a lot of printmakers do, right, is teach freshman drawing because then you get to see the kids who can draw and then you just kind <laughs> right. of be like, oh, here's this other thing, right? I have heard of that technique before. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I, I think, um, yeah. And then you say like, you know, I don't say this to every kid, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> So, so he was my, you know, drawing professor uh, as a freshman. And, and he was like, Oh, like, come on upstairs to the print shop, right? And I'll show you like all this other stuff. And, and I didn't, I, I mean, immediately, I was hooked, right? I, mm -hmm. I didn't totally understand why I liked printmaking. And, and you know, I, I started to understand it much later in life. But, um, but it just made it, it, it in a way, it made sense. I wasn't making like great prints or anything. But it's like, like loving to draw and having a different outlet of drawing. And I'm somebody who, who loves process. I love structure. I love mm -hmm. routine. Um, like I'm, I'm, I'm definitely okay with delayed gratification. Like <laughs> all of those kinds of things are just things that are, that are a part of my, my personality. Right. And who yeah. makes me. So being given these tools and you gotta go through all these steps and you gotta do all these things over again, you know, it was, it just made sense in that way. Um, 
so that's how I found printmaking. And, and Bradley was a was a, an Intaglio sort of focused, Intaglio and Relief sort of focused education. And then when I went to graduate school at the University of Georgia, you know, that's where I learned how to do screen printing and litho. And, and I got more of a sort of a, a conceptual, you know, sort of challenging education in graduate school. Yeah, it's funny talking about delayed gratification and process and, you know, how that was sort of a part of you. And then so, of course, when you came to printmaking, you're like, darling, I've been waiting for you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But also, it's I was talking the other day with Tim, you know, we just moved to Santa Fe. Mm -hmm. And we finally got a chance to go on a hike. And it's been a long time since we've done a hike. There's not really hiking in Bangkok. There's other kinds of outdoor fun, but not hiking. It's, you know, you're almost below sea level. There's not a lot of mountains around. (laughs) And so we were walking up the hill and we were really sore. And we were talking about, like, type one and type two fun. I don't know if you're familiar with this. No. It's this idea that, um, that I think was originally actually founded kind of in outdoorsy people communities, but has actually been adopted by happiness researchers. Uh And type one fun, it's the immediate gratification. You know, it's the like, it's the having sex, eating cookies, uh, (laughs) binge watching reality TV. And then the type two fun is the, you know, like going for a hike, like it might hurt, but afterwards you're going to get this kind of gratification for it or, you know, taking on grad school, you know, something like that. And it never occurred to me until you pointed out the delayed gratification element. I was like, oh, is printmaking type two fun? (laughs) (laughs) I would agree with that. I think it totally is type two. Yeah, yeah. So I think people who who can respond to type two fun, maybe (laughs) definitely, yeah, that's another part of the... The, the printmaker zodiac um, right. is to be like must like type two fun. <laughs> <laughs> so so you went to grad school and like you said you got your your print world expanded a little bit, um, or it sounds like quite a lot because you got to kind of um, you know get out of that that more formal intaglio training. And so what happened after that? Where like did you immediately um, go to West Virginia? Or did you bounce around a bit? Yeah, so um, I let's see, I graduated and I taught for a semester, a summer uh, semester at in Athens, in Georgia, um, and then I went back to Chicago. Um, so I I was doing the the sort of adjunct thing in the city. I remember. So this was when we were still doing slides, right? Uh, and I sent. I don't even know how expensive this was, but I sent every. You know, I was I was printing out or researching magazines. <laughs> I had lists of all of the colleges and universities and community college community colleges in the Chicagoland area and the like every gallery that would show like contemporary printmaking. And I sent all of them wow. packet, you know, of slides. And I think I got like three callbacks. Yeah. You know? I got a callback from uh, two uh, community colleges and then. I think, oh, two galleries. So I got four callbacks. Um, so yeah, so I started working. I started teaching at um, a couple community colleges, but they had different campuses. So I was driving like 100 miles a day oh. you know, like from campus to campus. Yeah. Um, and then just trying to make work. So I, I, I didn't have time to make, you know, really ambitious work or anything. I, I really started drawing because it fit in the, in the apartment that we had at the time. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, like just trying to stay active, right? And mm-hmm. and had other jobs. You know, I, I worked for a sign maker in Chicago for a little bit. I worked at the Museum of Contemporary Art. Um, I you know I unloaded the the merchandise truck at Kohl's. You know, at night. <laughs> yeah. You know, try to make ends meet. You know. Um, and then I, it, that was like I think two two or three years. And then. Um, and, you know, applying for full-time teaching jobs, you know, all throughout. And, yeah. and this, you know, appeared and, and I, you know, went through the process and I luckily was was hired at, at this position because it's a really supportive school. And, um, and I, I absolutely love, you know, living here and living in Appalachia. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, I feel like that's a very, you know, classic kind of paying your dues, as they say, uh, you know, story. And it is always interesting to hear how, even though that time can be straining, you know, not, you know, like not necessarily like the most comfortable, but we do always 
come up with skills that we use later on along the way. Um, and I think that's always a really interesting part of, of the arc of stories. And, you know, I'm definitely someone who, I think it took me like five years to do my undergrad, three years to do my graduate work, went to a bunch of different colleges, worked part-time, you know, and then you always end up kind of picking up things along the way that you then use. And so it's never, yeah, never time wasted for sure. Mm-hmm. And, what you were talking about, about how, you know, still finding space in all of that to continue your art practice is really important and inspiring because I think a lot of students do get a bit of a shock when mm-hmm. they come out of undergrad or particularly grad school. And you've been in this little dream world where all you had to do was think about your art and what you're making and why. And then all of a sudden you don't have a studio anymore and you don't have um, uh, your best friends every day to talk about what you're making. And it's very different. Yeah. Yep. yep. Yeah. I mean, I try, I try to talk about that as much as possible because mm-hmm. there, that definitely wasn't, you know, I think academia has gotten better at talking about these kinds of issues in the last, whatever, 10, 15 years. Um, but definitely when I was a student, like we didn't talk about this kind, you know, that kind of <laughs> all, you know. Yeah. Ignore really, the little man behind the curtain, right? Yeah, yeah. right. And and I mean, it, it's kind of like, it's kind of funny to say, but I remember talking with uh, Carmen Colangelo, who was um, the, the director of the School of Art at Georgia at the time. And, you know, he was a printmaker and he was on my committee. And we were just kind of casually talking. And he just sort of like mentioned, like, you know, if you want to achieve something, you have to be strategic about mm. achieving it. And it like, it, it's such a small and obvious thing, but it like blew my mind <laughs> because nobody like put it that way before, you know? I always thought like, oh, you just make work and you put it out there and, you know, the cream rises to the top and, you know, and you get what you do. If you build it, they will come. Right? And it's like, no, like that's not how it works (laughs) at all. You have to make connections and you've got to work for it and you have to put yourself in a in a certain position, you know? And um, so so I try to talk about those kinds of things with my undergraduates and and my graduates as much as possible, you know, reminding them of the fact that they need to go downstairs to the visiting artist lecture mm-hmm. because when you leave here, you're not going to have world-renowned artists just show up at your doorstep yeah. and talk about their work for an hour, you know, like, and like what you were saying about your best friends just being there and wanting to talk about art and, and all of mm-hmm. that stuff. Um, so yeah, the more that they start thinking about that now, hopefully they're just prepared. It's not so much of a shock to the system when it happens. Yeah. Yeah. That's so important. And it's again, the kind of thing where you, you can't ever truly get someone to conceive of it because, you know, I, you know, Oh man, I was an idiot. Like, (laughs) but truly like, you know, you don't really understand it because it's it's the only thing, you know, you know, the only thing, you know, um, for a lot of people. And of course there are, returning students who I think often and, and you know, the non-traditional older students who often get so much more out of it because they know what a magical place universities yep. are and how precious those that time is. But mm-hmm. generally speaking, people who do the the the, the track of, of uh, high school, undergrad, grad school, you just you can't even imagine what it's like out there, kids. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So, yeah, it is important to, to have those conversations early on. Right. And and just keep repeating it, even though you're right, like they can't fathom, they really can't conceptualize what that's like. But the more they hear it, then, you know, hopefully it'll it'll make sense. Like when, when it happens, they'll be like, oh, like this is what Joe is talking about, you yeah. know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's so full disclosure, as you were saying that, you know, you had the words of wisdom. If you want something, you need to be strategic about 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 getting there. I was 37 years old on the other side of the mic being like, oh, shit, he's right. I was like, oh, no, I got to figure out what I want now. Well, better late than never. Yeah, right? yeah. Thank, no, I'm really, really glad I got you on this podcast. <laughs> you can't just keep, yeah, falling through life. Um, <laughs> that's really funny. Um, so I want to make sure that, that we have plenty of time to, to talk about the, the work that you make. Um, mm-hmm. And it's 
really, I always hate to be like, it's interesting, right? Because that's like so, such like, you know, an art, like such eventually a meaningless thing because we say that about everything. But like, it really is like, like the, your practice isn't really like anything else I see out there um, in the terms of ways you engage with it and and also your your source material. And so I'm not even sure, you know, how to like from what direction to start cutting into this pie. Um, but maybe you can kind of, talk about uh, one of your more recent series so we can kind of maybe so you start from what you're working on now mm -hmm. um, for instance like the, the Lost in Translation mm -hmm. um, and just you know these French comic books and, and how you found them and why you were drawn to them mm -hmm. and uh, where do you even find them you know where do you find copyright free <laughs> French comic books from the early 1900s and just you know um Kind of, you know, st we can, uh, you know, go backwards. Maybe I guess is the best way to to enter it. Yeah. So yeah. So well, thank you for for what you said about my work. I, I mm. appreciate that. Um, and it, you know, it, it makes for an interesting kind of head dialogue when I'm making my own work and I'm wondering if the things that I'm doing <laughs> are valid and it's like, am I? Is this really what I'm doing with my? Life? <laughs> Uh, but, but it's just like the way I, you know, I can't help it. Right. It's just the way that I think and it's the way that right. I work. Um, mm -hmm. so yeah. So like you were saying, so right now, the work that I'm making right now is, uh, it's appropriated imagery from copyright free, uh, comics. And the focus lately has been like non-English language comics, right? So I've been right. looking for Spanish language and French language because there's a, a, a lot of those to find. Um, and then what I do is I, I take the letters from that text and then I make an anagram mm -hmm. that's an English language anagram. And the hope is that when I make the anagram, like the final anagram, I, I, I use a software to help generate anagrams because it's it's hard enough as it is. Yeah, yeah. And it, it's still slow, even with, with the software. <laughs> uh, but I, I, I try to create, you know, like a bunch of options and then the one that I, I usually rest on, I, I try to have it sound like it almost makes sense. Mm. I, like I'm interested in this sort of like this text that, yeah, it's it's almost poetic and it almost kind of makes sense and you can infer something with it, right? So it isn't just like five words that are just pieced together, right? It has to, it has to sound like it has a, a sentence structure and it's got meaning behind it. Um, and the whole reason why I do this mm -hmm. <laughs> is I, I think about that process uh, of going through the finding source material, thinking about the text, the original text as like data, manipulating that data to make like new information. I just think of that process as a way of talking about how we construct meaning Um yeah, like what you know, what is meaningful, what isn't meaningful. Um, I also I use systems a lot in my work, um, which which gets to like my own ideas about like what does it mean to be an artist, um, which challenges like you know traditional notions of like the the singular genius you know right. artist. Yeah. Um, so I like I like challenging those kinds of notions, right? The other thing about the work that I make, because it's appropriated work, is like, uh, you know, we we can't have an aesthetic conversation about my work, right? Because I didn't make any of the aesthetic. Mm -hmm. So you can't be, you can't say, Joe, like, I think like this composition is really interesting. <laughs> I mean, you can say that and I'll say, oh, yeah, I think so too. But, you know, I have nothing <laughs> to do with it. So yeah. find that, uh, you know, this idea of like making the artist making work that's devoid of traditional notions of aesthetics, like, you know, all of those things I find challenging to make the work. And I'm hoping that the work that I make is, is like a metaphor for all of these things. Mm. Right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's um, <laughs> just having this flashback to last night, Tim and I actually learned that we live way out in the country you know, really not almost in Santa Fe. Uh -huh. And we learned that there's a printmaker that lives down the road from us. And we were like, whoa, he's, he's got this studio with a bunch of you know etching presses. And we went over last night just to chat with him. And he had a sign on the door that said, Dadaists and Surrealists cannot enter or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> like, no, no entry to Dadaists and Surrealists. That's really funny. And, you know, and he did you know, beautiful landscapes, you know? Yeah. He was, yeah. So it, and, and, 
And I think I, I bring that up as just sort of an illustration. And, you know, we pointed it out and he was like, he's like, oh, it's a joke. It's a joke. Right. You know, so, you know, these. Um, but I bring that up because I think that there is often this feeling of this kind of chasm within yep. the art world between like, I paint landscapes, mm-hmm. you put a sign on a urinal, you mm-hmm. know, and um, and and that, that that chasm seems to be rarely crossed in printmaking. Mm-hmm. And and that's part of the reason why I said like your work is such a standout when you spend a lot of your time and energy looking at printmakers practices like I do mm-hmm. is that you're you, you're working in this way that we tend not to see represented very much within the print medium. Mm-hmm. And I'm kind of wondering what, you know, I, I think you, you addressed it a little bit in in kind of what you, you know, you're doing or with the work. But what do you think really drew you to mm-hmm. the road less traveled, I guess, um, yeah, you know, I, particularly within our, our little family of printmaking? Yeah, totally. Um, and I, I mean, I agree with everything that you're you're saying 100 um, percent. So it was uh, it, it took a while to get here. Mm. Um, you know, I I can draw. Right. I, I most of my education was filled with representational drawing. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was a senior in college going into graduate school, I w- made very printerly intaglio prints, right? I would I, w- I would reuse a plate. The plate would go in and out of the acid, you know, like 14 times. It would be figurative, mm-hmm. expressionistic marks, right? Those kinds of things that we all kind of knew made for an interesting print, right? Or an interesting image. Um, and... What I realized, and again, this came through, you know, faculty asking questions that I had never thought about before in graduate school. Uh, but what I what I started to realize was like the reaction that I would get, it was all predictable, you know. Like I knew if I made if I made all, all these kinds of crazy lines and my dry point was really black and velvety, and it was a big plate, like I knew people were gonna like it, hmm. right? Because how could you not? Yeah. Like, you know, I'm a sucker. I'm still a sucker. Oh, for like, same. Well, yeah. right? Um, but so that came less, that, that just became less interesting. And the other thing is, is now I've, I understand my relationship with drawing better, but at the time, like I started to have this very complicated relationship with drawing because, you know, when I would want to make work and I had an idea, the first question was like, well, how do I draw that? Right. And that question became less and less interesting. And when I started to appropriate imagery, you know, the question was just, how do I communicate that idea? Like, how am I going to figure out how to communicate that idea with with images that already existed? Um, And that is a much more interesting question. And then I can remember, I never, I, you know, I mean, I'll always remember this moment because this was like a defining moment for me. So, you know, my third year of graduate school, I, I was redrawing and reprinting my receipts. I was thinking about right. the receipts that I get as this this diary. Um, and I remember making the first one, right? And I was, you know, just essentially just redrawing, you know, verbatim the receipt without any wrinkles. Like I was just drawing letters. And I remember like getting ready for a critique and I was like, all right, like, this is it. I'm going to get kicked out of grad school because <laughs> cause this is crazy, you know, like, what am I doing here. And so I didn't know how the viewer, I didn't know how I thought of the work, you know, and, and I didn't know how the viewer was going to react. And that was exciting, you know, for mm. the first time. I had no idea what anyone was going to say about the work. And then getting feedback was real feedback, right? Because ev- everything that the viewer was saying was all new information for me. Um, Cause I, I wasn't able to predict, you know, what they were going to say. So, so that's, so from that moment on, it's become an awareness and an understanding of how I work and how mm. I process information, right. And just what, what is a way of, of making work that makes sense to me. And, and I think and, and I think it speaks in a really huge way to how you derive meaning from art making. Mm-hmm. Because I was like, you know, to, to to what I heard in your story is that you said, Oh, I've cracked the code. I know how to make everyone like what I do. I'm not gonna do that. Like you know 
why would I do that? I'm going to do something that puts me in a space where it's unknown. And so yeah. that way it really becomes more of an interactive dialogue with your audience mm -hmm. because it's not going to be, wow, that's really big and pretty and well done. Yeah. Great. You know, and, and as we said, you know, no shade to people who want to make big, pretty things that are well done. I love yeah. looking at big, pretty things Correct. that are well done. <laughs> but, you know, for you, that wasn't fulfilling what your expectation was or, or what you really wanted to get out of this process of image making. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's funny how, so all of this now is like really obvious to me, but mm -hmm. even, even like five or six years ago, so I was reading, um, I was reading a, a magazine. It was a print-based magazine, you know, Printmaking Today or, or, or one of those. And uh, there was a, a, an article with uh, an interview with an artist named Nina Kachadorian. And, you know, and, and you know, these moments when you read something and sometimes somebody says something and it's like they're talking about you or your work, right? And they mm. say, say it in a way that you could never say it. And so she said something to the effect of, I'm going to butcher this, but Something to the effect of, because she's an, uh, an artist that uses found imagery, and she said, I, I, I work better with lines that already exist rather than inventing my own. Mm. And I read that, and I was like, that, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> like, how did you know that about <laughs> Yeah, you've been reading my dream journal. Um, yeah. <laughs> and so that, and, and you know, and, and as you get older as an artist, and I, I've been lucky enough to do a lot of lectures, you know, to be a visiting artist, and you, you look back at your career, and you look back at your life, and the thing that I, I, I realized looking back is like, ever since I was a kid, the thing I loved to do, even when I was drawing, was copy. You know, mm -hmm. I, I would draw my own things, but they were never as interesting, and I never thought they were as good. The thing I liked to do was I liked to look at somebody else's drawing and try to make my drawing look exactly like that drawing, right? Or I would draw like a logo and try to make my drawing be the exact logo, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's, again, it's just this sort of innate way that I, I process information and the way that I can make meaning is by looking at something that already exists and then say like, well, how else can I make sense of this, right? Are there any other options here than just the one that was intended, you know, right. when created? And it's, it's a way of interacting with pre-existing visual culture that places the meaning in such a slippery, transient state, mm -hmm. you know, that somehow these French comics, you know, they don't have this innate meaning locked into them, mm -hmm. that even uh, seeing them 120 years later, mm. you know, they still get to keep that. Mm -hmm. Like, So you're, you're, you're really playing with um, this ability for particularly visual culture. But I think what's interesting, what you're doing is that you're also doing it with text, yeah. which I feel like we tend not to think of as slippery mm -hmm. as visual culture, you know, mm -hmm. so you could say like, Oh, I look at that painting and I see a horse and I look at that painting and I see my mother and we're both right, you know, yeah. but, <laughs> <Yeah>. we, <laughs> um, but we don't think about text that way, but in a way what you're doing with, you know, taking uh, the French text and turning it into these, you know, strange little poems mm -hmm. is that you're also, I think, reminding us that we place sometimes too much authority mm -hmm. in text and words and too, maybe too little in visual culture. I don't know, but it's it, that, that hierarchy is something that I'm really, really aware of as, as someone who talks about a visual medium on a podcast, you yeah, know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, you're totally right. Right. And that is the hope, right. Of, of getting people to think about how we understand text, how text is the definition of, 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 of a word is, is squishable, right. That it, it changes over time as we understand what it means um, or as, as things happen in our lives. And so right. our, Def, our own personal definitions of, of text, you know, changes. The other thing too is that, you know, so so I, you know, you're getting at this idea of like expectations, right, and assumptions right, right. about meaning, and and that's the other thing that I really like playing with, and that's why comics for a long time now has really made a lot of sense for me to play with, is because there's an expectation and an assumption that if I put an image next to a piece of text. Like the assumption is the artist intended for those two things to be together and they make sense and they talk about this large story, right? And as soon as the viewer 
has assumptions and expectations about something that, again, is like a, it's ground for me to subvert those expectations, right? To complicate those expectations. Mm -hmm. So if the viewer sees a picture and then they see this text that like, would it like, you know, hopefully in their mind, they're just thinking like, well, that doesn't totally make sense. Like what is happening here exactly? Right. And then hopefully they're starting to construct, you know, new meaning and and new understanding of of the image. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And that answers one of the questions I was going to ask you, which is sort of the, the why comics. And it really makes sense that it is a, it is a pairing of images and words that feels very familiar to mm-hmm. everyone that yep. feels very um, complete, mm-hmm. yep. you know, and, and that, and I think maybe even because it has that association with childhood, although of mm-hmm. course, you know, there are many graphic novels, which mm-hmm. um, are absolutely incredible stories and ways to, to transmit ideas, you know, with that balance of images and words, but particularly the, the more old fashioned aesthetic that you're picking up on, you know, you think of it as, is is appearing in a newspaper and a child's comic book. Yep. And so, so it lulls us into a sense of direct communication mm-hmm. that then, again, you say messing with expectations that you really pull the rug out um, mm-hmm. by changing the words. And hopefully, I would guess, you know, hopefully putting making someone feel off balance enough to spend a bit more time with the image than they certainly would under other circumstances. Yeah, that, I mean, that is that is the goal. Right. So and and there's a, and there's some other sort of decision making there, too. So, you know, I mean, one thing is I, I do. I, you know, I've read comics since I was a kid. I, I absolutely love comics. I still read comics. So so it made sense to make that leap into using comics. But the other thing, too, is that as a printmaker, I if I'm going to use imagery that already exists, I feel like it makes sense for me to use printed imagery. Right. Yeah. So, you know, that's why I I was using receipts, you know, way back when, when I kind of first started thinking more conceptually about making prints. And that's why, you know, making, making images out of comics makes sense because there's that, 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 that binding of the history of printing and the history of comics that have impacted, you know, both have impacted each other. And, you know, if it, it just, again, it just makes sense. If I'm going to use these materials and I'm going to use these processes and I'm going to use source material that's not mine, why, why, why wouldn't I use imagery that's been printed? Yeah. Yeah. And so how did you come across these French comics? Are you, do you, do you have the physical comics in your life? Or are you interacting with them digitally what's the kind of the actual process like for you so i do have um i do have them in real life uh so um uh, another artist uh, named chris brandio um who teaches at rice and he's somebody who also uses um uh comic imagery that exists in the public domain right copyright free i think he's the one that told me about this online resource um, and it's called, uh, man, something like comic. Mm, I'll have to look it up and, and I'll find it later. But anyway, it's a, it's an online resource that just lists, um, copyright free public domain comic co- comics, right. That are English language, American, but also from all over the world. And they're copyright free just because of the amount of time that they've been in the public domain usually? Usually, but you know, the publisher may have gone defunct, right? Okay. It happened a lot in the United States in the 50s and 40s. There was mm-hmm. a comics kind of crisis where comics were deemed to be bad for kids. Oh. Like co- public comic book book burnings. That oh, happened. my gosh. Yeah. Um, and so, and so uh, you know, because of that, a lot of publishers went bankrupt, mm-hmm. right, out of business. And so there's a lot of those as well, you know, since essentially now – well, it's opened up a little bit, but, you know, for a while you just had like, you know, Marvel and DC and, and, and Image and then a couple independents. Um, but anyway, so it's this big resource. So so I, I can go through and I can start looking for opportunities, right? Like what, where can I start looking and where what titles can I find? So I start jotting those down. I go on eBay. I start finding them. I start finding ones that are affordable. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the first one. So I'm, I, so that's also kind of the nice thing is like, I'm finding uh, comics that people don't value, which yeah. that was another part of, I think, my process. Um, and then, so, because I like to use the scans, right? So I can get a really high quality a high resolution scan and then I can use Photoshop to start manipulating so that that manipulation is 
as as seamless as possible. Um, but then, so I get the comic, and then I have to look through the comic. And this is the part that actually takes a long time. Mm-hmm. That's come, it's gotten quicker because it's come from experience. But like, the first thing I have to do is I've got to look at the talk bubbles and the text, right? So if if the text is like two paragraphs long, I'm not going to use that, right? Because that's too much text. Yeah. And if it's like two words, that's like too little text. So I've got to find the text and an image that's kind of interesting, that's just the right amount of text. And then, like I said, I've got this software that helps me create anagrams. And then I have to start just kind of like, you know, uploading that that data, that text into the software, and then I can start generating anagrams. But what also happens a lot is like anagram, like an interesting anagram doesn't happen. You know, like I might work on a panel for a week and it's like, well, like that's not going to work. So I'm going to move on to the next one. So it's a, it's a really slow, laborious process uh, but I, I like that that's hidden, you know, like like comics, you know, some comics take like 10 years to make and you read it, you know, in an hour or whatever, you know, yeah. like, you know, people that read comics don't understand the amount of labor a lot of times that went into making it. So I, I like that labor is hidden, but that it's there. Um, and yeah, it's a it's a it's, it's a process. And, and, and when I'm in front of my computer, you know, in my studio at school, like, you know, generating an anagram, like those are the moments when I'm like thinking to myself, is this, are people actually going to like this? You know, yeah. understand what's happening here. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> definitely. Definitely. Um, and I think that's, that's so relatable for being in the weeds of any yeah. creative project, you know, um, where you just you just have to have faith in the outcome and put yeah. your head down and keep going. Um, now, do you do you speak French or do you have any relationship to the French language that okay. kind of affects the way you interact with these objects? So that's a good question. Okay, so I don't, and I speak like elementary level Spanish, mm-hmm. right? And so before I started working with with non English uh, language text. I was only deconstructing this one comic book, right? The idea was to like go do a deep dive into one comic book and how many different ways can I deconstruct and reorganize, you know, the information, which was an English language, you know, it was a superhero comic book. Um, and, and then what I was thinking about was that it made sense to go into a non-English language text because I don't know what it says. And so right. I can't be persuaded into thinking like, well, you know, it, maybe it should say this or like this would make sense, right? Like it's, it's purely then, like these letters are purely data that yeah. I just turn into something else. And I really liked that aspect of it as well. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Like a lot, a lot of sense. And it, and it feels more, um, I don't know, spiritually in line with the William Burroughs cut-up technique and the Dadaist poetry. That it's just that like, um, that, that search for like, how, you know, how do I divorce myself from meaning yeah. while still creating something? Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. that then will, of course, be interpreted through someone else as meaning. Yeah. 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 For sure. How far can I push? Yeah. How far can I push the idea of, of, of something being meaningful? Right. And to me, like everything has meaning, you know, like it's impossible if it, just the fact that the artist decided to make something means that there's meaning behind it and means that the viewer has the potential to find meaning. Mm. So I like trying to create this system in which I'm trying to divorce our sort of traditional notions of how meaning is created as much as possible to show the viewer, you know, see like I can just take this and then we can do this and I can put these two things together. And because it almost makes sense, you know, you're, you want to make meaning out of it. And I, I just think that that's how we live our life, right? Is you, you experience this one thing and you experience this next thing, or you see an image and you want to find meaning in, in what it, what it is, you know? Yeah. yeah. Cause that's, I mean, that's sort of the, the bit of the magic in art making and, and why, you know, we say, you know, quote unquote, animals can't make art. Right. But you know, <laughs> the, although the, the, um, I got my undergrad in f- philosophy with a focus in aesthetics. So don't make me go down that rabbit hole. But let's just say, for if we if we say for you know the time making, you know why, you know why when a Japanese cuttlefish creates an elaborate structure right. beneath the sea, 
Why is that not a work of art yeah. or um, a crow building a nest or when we hand an elephant a paintbrush and mm-hmm. make the poor thing slap acrylic paint around for tourists? Yep. Um, you know, why do why do we not count that? Yeah. And I think it is because in, in, in the act of, of human creation, we there will always be human intentionality. Yeah. And whether that is intentionality that's explicit or didactic or uh, obscured it's always in there and i think that's what keeps people coming back in a way mm-hmm. and always more intrigued with it than they would be in something in other acts of creation like you know mountains coming up out of the ground or something like that yeah 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 and i you know the other thing i like to tell my students when they when i start to challenge them on on sort of taking less control of their work Mm. Uh, is that idea of like being random is a is an intention right like that's still a decision <laughs> you know if you allow yeah chance to dictate all of the things you as the artist still made that decision to allow chance to dictate all absolutely of the- yeah and then there and so there's something to for the viewer to make sense of with that right why would an artist want to do that you know and then hopefully that first question it, it, like you said like leads them to spend a little bit more time with the work and try to to understand what the artist is trying to do. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Cause we, we, we can't escape it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in the same way that we can't es- ever escape our own brain or our own thoughts, okay. the, yep. hu- the humanness is, is trapped within us for better, or for worse. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I would agree with that. And like, Oh my gosh. And like, God knows, like that's, you know, spent plenty of late nights stressing about that one, but it's, you know, <laughs> between this between me and my therapist um but (laughs) yeah 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 um i think too you know because you've you've spoken uh a couple of times throughout about you know the way you you speak with your students and i i know you know just by reputation that you are someone whose students speak very very highly of and that your dedication to them is not unnoticed, I should say, out in the world. So I'm wondering if if you wanted to talk a little bit about, you know, the actual program um, at, at West Virginia University. And it sounds like, you know, I, I always think it's really interesting with professors, sort of the way that their own practice mm-hmm. is influenced by that experience, mm-hmm. because it's got to be, you know, mm-hmm. um, and, and, you know, we've already talked a couple times about, you know, your work sort of through the lens of the way you communicate to your students, but maybe just kind of speak to it directly, because I think it is a really interesting question. And and also one that I think a lot of people kind of struggle with, you know, especially if you're maybe a, a newer, in a newer professorship, um, you know, more recently out of grad school, this sort of, like, how can I be a teacher and an artist? And, you know, do they in- influence each other? Or should they? Or am I trying to make carbon copies of myself and my students? Or should they never look at my work? You know, all those huge yep. questions, which I, I think that you've also spent time thinking about. So, yes. yeah. Imagine that, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah. So, I mean, I guess to say a little bit about the program, um, so, so it's it, it's just me. I guess that would be one of the, <laughs> for better or worse, right? I am the printmaking program. Yeah. Uh, I I teach all of the main processes, right? We've got a great litho uh, studio. Um, we do screen printing, intaglio, and relief, and then you know the other sort of smaller processes that come out of all of those processes. Um, I feel like I, I was lucky enough to I- inherit a, a program that uh, was built by a bunch of printmakers before me, right? Mm. So there's a lot of space and a lot of light. And um, it's a really great studio. I love being in, in that physical space. Um, so so I, I, I try to balance, you know, so thinking about the undergraduate program, I try to balance that idea of like technical know-how with, with conceptual mm. um, sort of challenges, right? I, I, I've, the thing that I think that my practice has infiltrated the, the the curriculum is where I, I'm trying really hard to get students out of illustrating their ideas, hmm. right? So I, I want I'm a student, I want to make work about like recycling. So I'm going to draw the recycling symbol, you know, mm-hmm. like, obviously, that's a 
hyperbolic example, but you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So, so how could we complicate that, right? How could we make an image that's about something or an image that is different than, you know, the first five things that are the most obvious, you know, solutions to that problem? So we do a lot of talking uh, in the first, you know, two weeks of a project, where students do like mind map exercises, right, to just get all of their ideas out as fast as they can and and try to really get beyond, like I talk about how those first like three rings are the most obvious answers. Uh, uh-huh. And so we got to get into ring like four and five because that's when things become more interesting and more complicated. I try to get students to become more authentic in their work, right? So they're really hopefully talking about the things that they're really interested in. Um, because that's going to make for more interesting work. Um, so in in the in the intro level classes, you know, you know, we'll learn you know how to do a a crayon drawing on a litho stone, and you know, here's a a real basic theme, and we're going to talk about how to take on this theme and try to get everybody to make work that is their work, right? Their artistic voice. Right. Um, and and pushing that as they get older, right? So junior level, senior level, you know, there's less themes or no themes, and it's really challenging students to try to find their artistic voice. And and that struggle, like you said, of of like, how do I not make carbon copies of me? Right. That's the I think that's the the struggle, but I think like that's what these conversations also help do is, you know, if I'm always challenging them to find the work that they want to make you know, what kind of subject matter do you want to talk about that hopefully helps keep students from just making the work that I think is is interesting and engaging. Mm-hmm. And then we have a graduate program. Um, and the graduate program, I, you know, intentionally keep relatively small. So we usually have, you know, two or three graduate printmaking graduate students uh, in the program at any one time. So I really got time to, you know, interact with the students and have more of a mentoring sort of relationship with the students. Um, you know, they've got free range of the the studios. Um, and, you know, when a graduate student comes in, I don't expect them to know everything technically. So it's not uncommon for a graduate student to sit in on a, you know, intro to Intellio class because they, you know, don't they haven't taken Intaglio or they never took Intaglio, right? And they want to learn more processes. Um, so allowing students to continue to challenge themselves conceptually as graduate students, but also allow for opportunities for um, uh, for technical growth as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the last thing I would say is that I think is a real benefit of the program is we have a lot of funding um, mm-hmm. for students, you know, undergraduate and graduate students. Um, I try to supply as many, if not all, of the materials that students need, so they're, you know, that's not burdening them financially, but it's also not a hindrance in terms of their artistic vision, right? If a gra- undergraduate student wants to make something really big, the first thing they might think is, oh, that paper is going to cost a lot of money. Yeah. Well, now I get to eliminate that problem, right? Um, and then there's funding for things like, you know, going to conferences and workshops, you know, students we're going to Frogman's, you know, on a regular basis, you know, mm. pandemic um, and going to Penland and, and Aramount and places like that. So um, there's a lot of support there, right, to get students out into the world and interacting with other printmakers other than me. <laughs> <laughs> more insights, you know, which I think yeah. is important. Um, yeah, so fighting the, 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 the carbon copy yeah, like force, you know, I think, um, you know, more exposure, I'm sure is a huge, a huge help in that. Yeah, totally, without a doubt. And bringing in visiting artists, I try to bring in, you know, pre pandemic, you know, we would physically bring in, you know, two visiting artists a semester. Uh, now, I think the thing I'm learning is, oh, I can bring in, you know, maybe one printmaking visiting artist a semester, and it'll be a little bit longer, and we get to work with them. And mm. then I, you know, like what you do, right? I can Skype in or FaceTime in mm-hmm. or Zoom in visiting artists from all over the country to get that interaction. So, you know, that's another thing that I think is really important in a, in a successful part of, of the program. Yeah, yeah. Um, that sounds amazing, by the way. <laughs> like, like, like listening to how you go about that, I'm like, that sounds like a really good way of doing that. And I and I say that just because I've yeah, I've never been a printmaking student. Um, you know, that's I'm I'm not a printmaker, and that's uh, you know the dirty open secret of Hello Print. <laughs> uh, but you know, I'm I'm an art historian by training, and a, and 
And I just love prints and I love printmakers and that's how I ended up here. But, you know, through that course, I've talked to a lot of people who have gone through many, many different uh, undergrad and graduate programs. And, you know, just that kind of structured way of helping new artists understand their ideas and how they get to their own ideas. I mean, that's not something you get in every program. You know, it's some programs, it's like, make something that was shit, make something else. And you don't ever really get the like, but how, you know, how do I get there? Mm -hmm. Um, And it sounds like you're interested in answering that question. Yeah. Yeah, I am. And and I, and I, I think part of it is, I mean, it was a trial and error, right? Process. Mm. You know, when I was a younger teacher, it, it, you know, I, it was a lot of like, let's make as much stuff as we possibly can. And then let's try to make sense out of all of this. Yeah. And, right. Which is, I think, kind of like a standard practice, or at least was a standard practice. Um, and and I, I teach a teaching practicum class for our grads, you know, so we, oh, yeah. we we read books about teaching. Um, and I think when I started doing that, um, you know, I, I was thinking about it, you know, before then, but when I started doing that is when I really started to understand, like, you know, again, this idea of being intentional and strategic, like, yeah. oh, if I, if I'm getting frustrated with the fact that my students are, are making really obvious decisions in terms of imagery, like it's up to me to, <laughs> to figure out a way to try to get them to see new ways, right? And so I've got to construct things in the curriculum that are trying to help that along. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's it's and, and I enjoy it. It's some you know you know the challenge of teaching and figuring out what teaching art is. You know, I mean, it's the weirdest thing you could possibly do <laughs> in your life. You know, uh, but to try to make sense of it, right, and to try to figure out ways in which you can make it work. And it's not just accidental, right? And like, I guess that worked, you know, for mm-hmm. this one person this one time. But, you know, yeah, trying to find methods and, and intentional things in the curriculum to actually make learning happen, you know, mm-hmm. and, and growth happen. Yeah, yeah. And and that idea that, yeah, in grad school, you teach your graduate students how to teach mm-hmm. is so huge because... Yeah. I remember teaching undergrads as a as a graduate student in art history and just thinking, what on earth makes you think I'm qualified to do this? You know, I have I have been told nothing about how to do this. And and all of a sudden you're making me stand up in front of a class of 18 year olds and try and make sense to them. Like, what is wrong with you? (laughs) Without a doubt. I mean, and that, you know, I loved my experience at the University of Georgia. I have very few complaints, but but like that same thing. I remember when I got, I was awarded a, a GTA and, you know, essentially like what I was told was you're going to be teaching drawing one. Good luck with that. Yeah, right? yeah. And so now, you know, throughout the entire graduate program, we, we give our graduate students, you know, all of the materials they need. They don't have to do anything really in, in a way, you know, they've got all of the lectures, all of the projects again, cause we don't want them waste. We don't want them spending their mental capacity on writing a new syllabus when they yeah, don't have yeah. to right? Yeah, or yeah. putting together a lecture when they don't have to. Um, so we give them all of that stuff so, so they can hopefully ease into it. And, and, and that transition into teaching is a little bit easier. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, we're we're coming up on on our hour recording mark, and I realized that I missed a question about your practice that I was really curious about. So, I'll try to, sure. <laughs> and and I'm I'm fine on time. So like you know, I I know you you have uh, parental obligations looming, but I just am really curious about. And this is probably like this is like a huge question, right? Of course, um, and maybe we'll edit it back into before you know do movie magic, or maybe we'll just um, let everyone know that I'm disorganized. But um, it's it has to do with you know because I've never seen your work in person. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I've only experienced it online. The way almost all of the guests I've ever had on this podcast have have experienced their practice. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious, do you feel the need or do you print and edition your work in that kind of formal printmaking way? Um, And then also, you know, some vague question in there about the way your work kind of intersects with the commercial art world and how, which I feel like in a way with printmaking, those questions are kind of one and the same. Mm -hmm. Um, And so uh, go, I guess. (laughs) 
Well, I, those those the answers are very connected. Yeah. Sure. Uh, so I do addition. Okay. Um, I addition very small. Uh, you know, fifteen, maybe anywhere between seven and fifteen mm-hmm. is is what I addition. And the reason for that is because my work doesn't seem to interact with the commercial mm-hmm. art world very well. Um, I'm somebody that seems and and I've I've learned to accept this mm-hmm. that uh, my work seems to work best in the nonprofit uh, academic um, uh, experimental gallery setting right yeah. so showing at university galleries showing at nonprofit galleries showing it at you know sort of small experimental spaces Um so because of that, you know, so so I, on the one hand, you know, in a given year, I might show, you know, 10 to 12 times in a year. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I do need an addition <laughs> to be able to uh-huh. show the work right in, in, in various places. But in any given year, and I am not ashamed, I talk to my students about this. Because I, I think this is also something to understand is, you know, the different ways you can interact with the different kinds yeah. of worlds that exist out there. In a given year, I might sell, you know, two, three things, <laughs> you know. Um, so, yeah, you know, and, and it's not that I haven't tried, you know, to interact with the commercial world. Um, I still, you know, at times there might be these short sort of flirtations with commercial galleries. Um, But it just, my work doesn't seem to reside well, or maybe I haven't found if it, if it is going to happen, I just haven't found the commercial gallery yet that, you know, can deal with the work that I I make can maybe see an audience (laughs) that would want to pay money for it. And uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, So, yeah, I think that that, I think that that, answers both of your questions yes yes it does thank you so thank you for kind of going back to that because i'm yeah i was um i was curious about it you know just you know because it it is um you know process you know process oriented or or kind of um theoretically oriented as yep. well but mm-hmm. i do also find them as like very pleasing images mm-hmm. uh and and i just came back from the experience experience of art week in miami um oh man that's a doozy that's which was a doozy and there was so much comic book imagery going around Mm -hmm. like so so much like there were these there were like the ugliest paintings i'd ever seen in my life hung around the corner from my booth that was like a hot chick's face that was like ripped open with comics underneath it thirteen thousand dollars sold out first day and and you know and I just didn't un- like that. I do. I do not. I will. I do not understand that. Um, oh. Like, but you know, I I was seeing work based in comic aesthetic do quite well. Um, of course, being used very differently. You know, being used um, not nearly as interestingly. You know, to be quite frank. Yeah. Um, but I guess yeah. So I just was sort of. You know, I think particularly coming from this world where I just was surrounded by you know other ways to interact with. Mm-hmm. comic imagery that was just flying off the shelves um but then you know with, but without nearly as interesting backstory and honestly like, i don't even think nearly as good looking like just really like aesthetically uh-huh. is what you do um yeah yeah so anyway that's sort of where we're part in part where the question came from um and just you know kind of also general curiosity about letting listeners and i know we have a lot of student listeners know the different ways that you can be a printmaker in the world and, and interact or not interact with the, the buying selling of, of the physical objects, the physical outcomes of your practice. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, the other thing, so like I said, I'm, I'm very open about this with my students. I think that they need to understand, you know, the fact that I'm not a good business person, (laughs) right? And I, I I don't think I'll ever be a, a good business person. But then that's where I bring in visiting artists mm. you know, like Jay Ryan, right? Yeah. And like Bryn Parrott. Yeah. Like I bring in visiting artists that are not tied to academia who have figured out, you know, one of my favorite questions is about taxes. How <laughs> <It's like, laughs> did you figure out how to do your taxes as yeah. an independent artist? Um, but bringing those artists in so that they can see a non-academic side and see that it's it's plausible, right? It's doable, 
they get to talk about the fact that they didn't know anything about business right going in, but that, you know, through trial and error and talking to other artists and maybe even going to a, an online course, right, or something like yeah. that, they learned how to do it. So, um, so yeah, that's really important, too, for students to see is, is all of those different aspects of the different kinds of art worlds that exist out there. Definitely. Def- cool. Okay. So good. I'm, I'm glad I... Uh, I I was hoping it wouldn't be an offensive question. <laughs> it come off as like, how do you sell this stuff? You know? <laughs> and then the answer is that you don't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's yeah. You know, like you said, I think it's so significant to hear that that it's it's just it's just such a a broad world. And as you said, to to bring it home. You know, it's that if you want something, you need to fig- systematically figure out how to get there. And so, you know, if your only goal was, I want to make work that sells in a commercial gallery, right. you'd probably still be drawing big, pretty things. Right. You exactly. know, and, and so it just it just has to do with, like, what are your motivations and, and, and what looks like success to you? You know, what looks valuable to you and, and find that and then figure out how to do it. Totally. Yeah. Cool. Oh, great. Um, well, this has been completely delightful, uh, <laughs> Joseph. Um, and yeah, thank you so much for, for coming on and and for, for chatting with me. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to, to stay in touch and, and maybe continue to work together in, in some capacity. Things always come up. So yeah. Thank you, Miranda. I am a huge fan. So this was a huge honor to be on here. I oh. really appreciate it. Oh, it was it was my treat. If you liked this episode, we do have a Patreon where you can help us keep the lights on and get bonus content. Shop Talk Shorts with our editor, Timothy Pauschak, who digs deep on materials, process, and techniques with our guests. And that's our show for this week. Join me again next week when my guest will be Valerie Luth, co-founder, artist, and operator of Tugboat Print Shop. We'll talk about what it's like to run your own business and be a mom in the middle of a pandemic, finding her artistic voice, and how you save your hands when making large-scale, intricate woodcuts. You won't want to miss it. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing by Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week. 